0: Forest City Church, anyone and everyone. Last week we taught on uh, how this whole year we are going to be grounded in Luke and Acts, which was written by one person, about one person, and about one church that was spreading. And those two books were written all for one person, Theophilus. And the challenge for us as Talmudim, which is the Hebrew word for disciple, apprentice, students of Jesus, was that we were going to spend this year marinating in one chapter each week, and that we would not just read it by ourselves, because Christianity and discipleship was never a solo sport, and we were going to chop it up, discuss it with somebody else. And so last service, I asked, I said, hey, anybody, anybody like... Reading Luke 1, and that's 80 verses, so we started 80 verses, um, Luke 1, but did anyone hear anything, sense anything, in the conversations, maybe with a friend or a small group, learn anything, and it was amazing just to hear. And so I just wanted to start this message just asking, any of you in the cheap seats, any of you in each of the rows, hear anything from Luke chapter 1? You can Raise your hand. Oh, Anne, what'd you, what'd you learn? Hold on, I'm gonna get the, get the mic for you. Uh, something stood out for both me and my husband that never had before, and that was that John was filled with the Holy Spirit while he's still in the womb, and he recognized Jesus while Jesus was still in the womb, and that's just amazing. That'll preach. That's awesome. Yeah, the fact that, like, John in the womb could recognize, hey, that. That's somebody. That's somebody. And being filled with the Holy Spirit. I love that. All right, this side, you did well. This side or this side or up there. Anyone? Anyone? I'll wait you out. I'll wait you out. Anyone over here? Come on, no worries. Oh, right there, right there. I'm coming for you. Get my Ricky Lake on. All right, here we go. I enjoyed the, you know, looking at the difference of Zechariah's faith versus Mary's faith. Um, how, you know, his voice was taken away because he did not believe. He's like, how could this be? Mary asked, how could this be? But she said, the, lo- the will of the Lord is mine, you know. So that was pretty cool. Oh, that's, that was also that was brought out in the first service. But I think that's so amazing because you have if Zechariah, who's like a religious priest who should know. And then you have this, like, young 13-year-old girl who's like, yeah, 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 I get you. I I see you. I don't have all your religious training, but I get it. All right, this side. That's brilliant. This side. Asa, we talked. You were my partner this week. I put you on the the, the stand? You you told me yesterday what stood out to you. So as I told you yesterday, the part that stood out to me is the fact that Elizabeth, didn't think that she could have a baby, but then God sent Gabriel to her. And Gabriel told her that God will send you a baby. And she she really didn't believe it because she's like, how could this happen? And you said yesterday, you're like, that gives me a lot of hope. And I loved it. I love it. He also did send me a text and said, watch out, I'm memorizing all of Luke 1. And I was like, all right, all right, all right. Uh, anyone, anyone, anyone up in the, anyone at the top? Maybe someone who was an eighth grader who won a wrestling tournament uh, last, last uh, yesterday who also had a great thought. Who's a Notre Dame fan? Oh, oh, wow, I got, it's amazing. It's like the bright shining light through there. Ariel, what you you had you had some thoughts too, do you mind? Bro, I'm so proud of you. Gosh, it's so good. What were you doing in eighth grade? Just, just fantastic. Man, that's amazing. Um, and this is what we want to do. We want, We want, when you go slow in the word, not just trying to rush through it, but you could sit in it. And you can begin to make some, some observations that I never saw that or seeing those connections or finding that hope or seeing that. And, and what's so great, too, is when you get to, get to learn from an eighth grader or learn from Asa or learn from, from someone from a different situation or circumstance, your faith gets expanded. So next week or this week, Luke 2, if you've got someone, great. If you don't have someone, um, I'll be your person. But, like, we, we really want to connect you because, man, you will go deeper and deeper in God's word. Amen? All right. Okay. One more announcement. Um, for some of you, um, this might be something that's familiar. Um, just bear with me. Um, I uh, I uh, got a flip chart for Christmas. So um, <laughs> so. <laughs> This will help my preaching a lot. Uh, it's kind of like a comfort blanket for me. But um, one of the things that I want you to be able to see, and, and for me, the, the text is so real, and we're going to dive into Luke 4 in a second. But um, what I want you to also understand is in the last year, we, we, we've been able to learn so much as a community. Where We got a lot of things wrong, where we were confusing at times, um, some places that we're trying to do right and do better. Um, but one of those that we've been able to see having one whole year um, is a clearer sense of where we can go with finance. And you heard Bria talk about generosity It's fantastic, but I just I want to give you some baseline numbers. Um, we, we cut our finances to like actually be deeply tied to um, what was on trend from last year. And so basically, like, for us, our budget for this year that we're thinking is 877000 So it's very, very slim. We want to be, like, really, really good neighbors to Elgin. We, we want to pastor well. Um, but we've cut, and we are just living within our means. It's very, very important to us. But what I want to be able to help you understand is we've also kind of shifted this number. And, and, and just to help you see is there's four quarters. And in and, and Q1, we're basically looking for 174K. Um, what I love is Luke 1, says, may we serve without, fa- uh, without fear. But that's, that's a, a whole other teach. But what that breaks down to is in Q1, that's 13 weeks, is that we're looking for basically 13,388. Uh, per week. And that, that's, that for us, if we can do that on a weekly basis, that's fantastic. And so what you'll see me do, basically, is this drawing over and over. It'll be broken up into four quarters. Um, we're in Q1, which we're trying to hit 13388. And um, honestly, like, we're, we're really excited about this. We, we feel like it's on trend. We feel like people who are, l- like, actually helping us with being generous, we're going to be able to serve our city, serve our people, serve this church really, really well. Um, when we get into Q2, I'll give you an update. When we get into Q3, I'll give you an update. When we get towards Q4, I'll give you an update. But that's that's what it is. Money is not weird to me. Uh, it's mentioned 2,000 times in the scriptures. Um, people often do this really, really poorly, and especially in the church. But for me, oh, I don't need that. Um, for me, I, I just believe it's part of our personal discipleship. That's all. So um, you'll never hear me like, shame you or stress you out about it. It's just trying to be clear and honest and human about it. So, sound good? If there's ever any questions, come find me. We'd love to chop about it. But if you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 4. We are going to dive into God's Word, and I'm excited about this teach. Um, If you don't have a Bible, um, we've got some in the pews in front of you. Um, What we're not going to be doing very much is putting the verses up on the screens because there's something powerful about the people of the church Flipping pages and you hear that sound, um, the sound of of pages turning in the scriptures and the smell of a Weber or Traeger grill. Those are the two holiest smells and sounds um, to heaven. So what I want you to be able to do is is open up to Luke chapter 4. The first 13 verses of chapter 4 is when Jesus is being tempted. He's being tempted in the Judean wilderness. He's being tempted by the enemy. And the enemy is really questioning him. If you are the son of God, if you are who everyone says you are, if you are, and he's going right after his identity, now prove it. Now prove it. And before that, Jesus had been baptized. And once he got baptized, the spirit of God actually led him into the desert, led him into the wild, led him into a place where for 40 days he wouldn't eat. And those 40 days were symbolic of the 40 years that the Hebrew nation walked in the wilderness. But from the Judean wilderness and from the desert, Jesus heads back to his childhood hometown. Luke chapter 4, verse 14 says this. Jesus returned to Galilee. Galilee's a region. In the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues. And synagogue literally means in Hebrew, assembly. He was teaching in their or assembled place. And everyone praised him. Verse 16, he went up to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, Sabbath would start when there were three stars in the sky on Friday night. And the local priest would blow the shofar like a massive horn. But the Sabbath day was considered Saturday. So the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. We'll stop there. Keep your hand in your Bible. Stay there with me. Now, what I want you to see, though, is a little map. Because sometimes we read cities, and we're like, Oh, we Galilee, Judean desert, the wilderness, Nazareth. Where is all of this located? Now, this is a a map I got off the internet. I did not create it. But if you see at the very bottom, there's that kind of like um, lighter blue. It says the Dead Sea. That's the Dead Sea. Next to it is the wilderness. That's where Jesus was tempted after his baptism. Now, if you go all the way up to the orange where it says Galilee, and underneath Galilee in purple is the word Capernaum, and then there's Cana, and then underneath that in purple is Nazareth, which is three. That journey from that Dead Sea wilderness up to Nazareth was a 30-hour walk. So Jesus goes up there, like filled with the Spirit. He's just been tempted. And I don't know if he had just like a a desire for some home-cooked meal or something. I have no idea. But he ends up walking up to Nazareth. And then in Nazareth, he enters into a synagogue. Now, I've been to Nazareth multiple times. And this is the synagogue that people believe that Jesus walked into. It's now known as Synagogue Church. And in the days, what you would see is, you might see on on both the right and the left, there were these kind of like these benches. And and you got to imagine that there's probably some sense of people maybe sitting on a bench, but the majority of people would have these cushions, pillow cushions, um, couch cushions, rugs, and they would be sitting on the floor. It's not very big. So the assembled place in Nazareth, probably no bigger than 80-some people that are in this spot, and Jesus walks in, and when he walks in, He's this traveling rabbi who grew up there. People have heard stories about him. People know him. And when somebody would come in who was a rabbani, a teacher of the word, if he came into the synagogue, people would know. And there was a moment where they didn't have like, preachers like uh, myself or Bria or Leonard to get up and give a message. Actually, the people who assembled in the synagogue, at any moment, they could feel tasked just like Anne shared and Asa shared and Ariel shared. Like, they would be off, offered the opportunity to share. So Jesus rolls in. And, and what's amazing is in a synagogue, they would have a massive, like, kind of bookshelf, and in this bookshelf, it was known as the Ark, almost symbolic of the Ark of the Covenant, and inside that shelf, if you opened it up, were these scrolls, the scrolls of the Torah, first five books of the Bible, these scrolls of the Tanakh, the entire Hebrew scriptures. And in some synagogues, they almost worked like a lectionary where on certain weekends, they would pull out this scroll, hand it to the reader, and that person would open it up and read. And some scholars think that Jesus just said, hey, give me Isaiah 61. We don't know. But what we do know is he was handed a scroll and he reads it. He reads it. And this scroll, you have to understand, it. it's so different than how we understand church today. Some context, maybe you grew up and the context was simple where someone would get up and read the scripture and everyone would stand because there was this authority in the text. And when they would read it, then all of a sudden the person would say, and this is the word of the Lord. And everyone would say, amen. And they would have a seat. Anyone grow up in that tradition? Okay, some of you. Some of you grew up in a tradition where um, the Bible was never read. or Maybe like a verse here, a verse there. But you didn't really have an understanding. But it was still church. But it wasn't like a a real sense of the word. But you know what it was like in a synagogue? When all of a sudden the Torah scroll would come out of the ark, they would start to roll it out. And I'm not going to make you do this because this would be awesome, though. I'm not going to say you have to do this. It's not like passive-aggressive in any way, shape, or form. But my man can dance. My man can dance really, really well. And some of you have seen this. But this is what would happen is when the Torah scroll would come out The the person would begin to walk through that synagogue church with the Torah or the Tanakh scroll, the scroll from Isaiah, and would start, and the people would start dancing. Because it was the joy of the word of God. And and not just dancing, people would actually go up. And when I would come up like closely to MZ with the Tanakh, with the scroll of Isaiah, you know what, you know what MZ would do? MZ would go like this: would kiss the text. Because they were like, I love the Word of God. I want this Word of God to actually not just be something that I know, but something that I embody. There was so much joy and a longing for the intimacy of the Word. If when we as a church for City Elgin, I was like, hey, turn with me to Luke chapter 4, and someone just started dancing, you all would be like, get Carter out of here. (laughs) It' run me out of town. if I like leaned over and I was like, and you watched MZ try and give a kiss to the text, you 'd be like, "What is going on in this church? But this is, this is the people 's love of the Word of God, and I 'm not saying we need to do that, but I also just want to offer up again, like last week, has this thing lost its sweetness? Have we lost the sense that in this book, somehow there is access to the intimacy to the hearts. Of God, and so so you have Jesus. He gets this. He gets this this scroll, Isaiah chapter sixty one, and he reads it. And I love Isaiah sixty one, but it says this: the spirit of the Lord is on me, because He has anointed me. And the word anointed in Hebrew is Messiah. He messiahed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Just stop right there. And, and, and people ask me, man, this was Jesus' inaugural message. This is his first sermon that we have documented. I don't know if someone just by the sovereignty of God was handed this date and this scroll from Isaiah 61 or if Jesus was like, here's my message and I want it to be Isaiah 61. Whatever it was, this was the message. And I think, honestly, when we think about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., why I think he speaks so much to many of us is because he was just someone who was just trying to embody Luke 4. You want to listen to a message This week on on Dr. Martin Luther King Day, I try and read an article or a book or listen to a teach. But he actually gave a message called the criteria of a constructive church from Luke 4. It's just him preaching in a church on Luke 4. But I I think for us, you got to understand, this is what Jesus was longing to do in the world. But then you just watch. Go back to Luke 4. Watch this. Because it's, it's, you have to understand that the people, the Jewish people, dancing, kissing, and yet they think they fully understand God's word, but they're missing the actual rabbi, the Lord, the Savior, and what he's actually up to. Look what it says. Then, verse 20, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Eight words. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Whenever you sat with the rabbi and you would ask and offer up interpretations, they would call it midrash. You offer interpretations of the text. A rabbi, the rabbini, the teacher, would look at the Talmudim, the disciple, and if the interpretation was true to the author's intent, to the context, he would say, My son, My daughter, you have fulfilled the Torah. You have fulfilled the Tanakh. You have fulfilled the intent of God's heart for this message. But if so, you chose not to interpret it correctly, they would slam their fists on the desk or the table and say, My son, my daughter, you have abolished the Torah. You've abolished the Tanakh. When I was first preaching, my my mentor, Dr. Joe Grana. He would stand in the back, and he just had a sign that just said heresy. And anytime someone would teach heretical, he would just raise it up. It was just fantastic. But I, I think this is what this, this rabbi, Jesus, is doing. He reads this, and you have to understand, in the synagogue, when a person would offer up and read the scroll, they would offer up a meditation. They'd offer up a devotion. They'd offer up a short teach about it. And Jesus just offers up eight words today. The scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And he sits down. And everyone's like, wait, wait, what? Like, what, what are you saying? See, when you, when you look at Isaiah chapter 61, there's one verse, and this is how Jesus ends that whole reading, is that this, he's here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor. Now that phrase takes you back to the book of Leviticus. So, If you have a Bible, turn with me to Leviticus. It's the third book of the Bible, Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus 25, and we'll just start in verse 8. And what I want you to see in this, Leviticus chapter 25, is this Old Testament understanding of how economies should work, how the world should work, how land should work, how kind of the Jewish system should work. And it was called Jubilee. Now, verse 8 says this Count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. All right. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month, on the Day of Atonement, which is Yom Kippur. Sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the 50th year. And proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the unintended vines." For it is a jubilee, and it is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. You keep reading down, it's going to talk about debts. It's going to talk about returning to your homeland. It's going to talk about every act that jubilee symbolizes. And this is, this is probably the best way in short to say it. Every 49 years, there was a year of jubilee, that 50th year. Where every debt was forgiven, prisoners were set free, the land rested, and Jewish people exhaled. Now, I'm not gonna make you raise your hand, but how many of you have some credit card debt? How many of you have a mortgage? How many of you feel at times in a sense of financial bondage and struggle? Every one of us, for the most part. And every 50 years, it was like all of those debts were set free. Th- really, this whole concept is the genesis of the movie Fight Club. And there was this sense of, can you imagine where in some, some reality where there was no debt? And, and let's just be like, let's talk about it for our country. We are we, we right now, we are like 45 days away from defaulting on our U.S. loan at 30-some trillion dollars. Can you imagine what a year of jubilee would be? What you would do if there was a sense where all of your Chase freedom card, which they call it the freedom card, which is just a lie from the pit of hell. But you had this, you actually had jubilee What would you do? You would be selling. Can you imagine if you had been locked up and it wasn't fair and you didn't get a fair trial and one like Jewish rabbi just didn't like your family and was like, sorry, man, you're locked up. Can you imagine if you were like Cook County Jail? You're free. And you would return back to your homeland and it was yours. Every 50 years, it was like, we're going to begin again. And we can't take from the land. We're going to let the land rest. We're going to let the debts rest. We're going to let all of the issues rest. We're going to let all, everything rest. And that's why it was Jubilee. There's no way to capture what that emotion did inside of you. And for some of you, you just get that sense when that loan gets paid off and you're like, that's what happened every 50 years, and Jesus goes, today, it is fulfilled, and I guarantee you, there was some Jewish man going, it's not the 50 year, this is not the year of Jubilee, what are you talking about, he goes, no, no, it's the year of Jubilee, it's the year of Jubilee, it's the year of Jubilee, and Jesus, as a rabbi, understands, I know what my people are thinking, I get Nazareth. I understand the ache. I understand the good desire. I understand the cultural stronghold because this is where I grew up. I understand what some of these people are thinking. And he can't just let it lie. He has to add to the conversation. It continues. Look at this. Verse 22, when he says this, all spoke well of him and were amazed. Were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. But then they asked, isn't this Joseph's son? We know Joseph. That guy's not that great. Like, really? Really? And look what Jesus said to them, verse 23. Surely, you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Now, here's what I need you to see. Jesus understands something. He understands that in this moment, people are like, ooh, yeah, I like that idea. I like that idea. But... A rabbinic teaching tool was something called a remez. And remez is where you would start a sentence, but you wouldn't finish it because you knew that everyone that was in the synagogue had memorized the Tanakh and they could fill in what you had left out. And so when Jesus says, and I proclaim to you the year of the Lord's favor, he leaves something out. And if you're familiar with Isaiah 61, this is what he leaves out. And the day of vengeance of our God. See, see here, here, here's the thing. For so many, many Jewish people in that day, they loved the idea of Jubilee, but what they loved even more was that the people who wronged them were going to get theirs. And what Jesus is beginning to articulate is that this idea of Jubilee is much bigger than this little Nazareth synagogue has a container for. And it's in this moment that Jesus begins to expand their understanding of what jubilee means. And it's in this moment that after Jesus' first sermon, he really angers his hometown crowd. Look what it says. It says this. Back to the text. Verse 24. Truly, I tell you, he continued, the prophet no prophet is accepted in his hometown. You've probably all heard this verse before. The question is why? Because back in those days they believed in a theory of limited good. There was only so much good to go around. And they thought if you were a prophet, a mouthpiece of God, that you had basically received all of the goodness for that region. So the people often were like grateful for you. They like cheered you on, but when behind your back, they they were hoping that you would fall and that your goodness would like leave you and then be available to everybody else. So people did not like prophets in their hometown. Continues on. Jesus is calling some stuff out. But then he says this about this whole vengeance idea. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. Now, if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 17. It's right before 2 Kings. It's the best I can do to help you. (laughs) Now, 1 Kings 17, this is the story. So what Jesus is going to do is he's he's trying to help these people understand, hey, I'm not just saying something. This has actually been true throughout the Tanakh. And you know the scriptures. You know it. And so he reminds them of this story when there was this massive famine. And look what it says in verse 7 of chapter 17. Sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? And she was going to get it. He called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. So what Jesus is saying, hey, this prophet could have gone anywhere. He doesn't go to Jerusalem to meet with a widow. He doesn't go to Galilee to meet with a widow. He goes all the way out to the region of Sidon to people who were absolute Gentiles and had wildly different views of God. And that's who the spirit of God sends a prophet? Why? But Jesus isn't done there. This is where he's really going to, to, to get the people really, really frustrated. Back to Luke chapter 4. It says this. Verse 27. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed. Only him. The Syrian. Now, if you're familiar with 2 Kings, and in 2 Kings chapter 5, I believe, you have the story of Naaman, who is a part of Syria. And Syria were some of the Jewish people's most hated rivals. They could not stand these people. And when you read 2 Kings 5, it's an amazing story about Naaman, where Naaman's kind of general and king sends a letter to the king of Israel and says, hey, I got a guy who's such a good dude. Um, can one of your people heal him? Because he's got leprosy. And like the Jewish king is like, what? This is a, he's going to pick a fight because if we don't heal him, we're in trouble. If we do heal him, what's going to happen? So all of a sudden, Elisha hears this and it's a beautiful story. And Elisha tells him, hey, here's what I need you to do. And, and Naaman's like, really? And it's not until Naaman's people are like, hey, hey you've been struggling with this. You say that this is a good dude, Elisha, he's a prophet. Just do what he says. And he does what he says, and he's healed. So, so, so again, why would Jesus tell these two stories? He could have gone to any w- widow, but he goes to this widow. The only person that was like, actually healed was like this person who was a part of Syria. Now, what you have to understand is about 150 years before the days of Jesus, there was a really, really bad dude. His name was Antiochus IV. His face he basically put on, on coins throughout Jerusalem. This guy was a really, really bad dude. And, and, and he really loved to toy with the Jewish people in ways that were very, very difficult. So just imagine the temple. And at the temple you have this massive light and candle that would light. For Jewish people, they, they, they don't eat pork. They don't eat pigs. But Antiochus wanted to actually have some fun with the Jewish people because he saw them as such profoundly less than. This is what this is from history. Uh, it's written by Diodorus, And it says this Antiochus sacrificed a great swine at the image of Moses. Which is just like absolutely my, my, my preaching professor would have just been heresy. Heresy. Like you do not do this. At the altar of God that stood in the outward court, this is the temple, the most holy place to the Jewish people. And he sprinkled them with the blood of the pig sacrifice all over the altar of God. The Jewish people are just weeping, weeping, continues on. He commanded likewise that the books by which they were taught to hate all other nations should be sprinkled with the broth made of the swine's flesh. And he put out the lamp called by them immortal, which burns continually in the temple. Lastly, he forced the high priest and the other Jews to eat the swine's flesh. And this was like you can't, like for the Jewish mind, this is, they would not do it, and by death you either eat this or you don't. He was just picking a fight. And then we learn in another antiquity about how evil this man Antiochus was. When these happenings were reported by the king, reported to the king, he thought that Judea was in revolt, and raging like a wild animal, he set out from Egypt and he took Jerusalem by storm. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom they met and to slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants. In the space of three days, 80,000 were lost, 40,000 meeting a violent death, and the same number being sold into slavery. And Jesus begins to say that the year of the Lord's favor has been fulfilled. And he tells two stories, both about Jewish people's enemies, and saying God's spirit has been moving out to all of these people. And look, look what the look what the, these these good-hearted. I'm saying this, faithful to their understanding of the Torah and the Torah and the Tanakh. Look what happens, verse twenty-eight. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Talk about a first sermon that maybe have you start questioning, should I be doing this? I've been to Nazareth, and I've been to the place they call Mount Precipice, where they took Jesus. After he reads Isaiah 61 and they drag him to this cliff and they want to throw him off. And the real question is why? Why? My son went to the University of Illinois this past weekend. He got back late last night. And I woke up on Friday morning to a text. Maybe some of you saw this in the news. He went to his high school to this whole theater fest. And he's there and they're on their way to go and at... 8 a.m., there was a bomb threat at the University of Illinois. So, my son and his whole class that was there were stuck at Target, just waiting. And I remember, I remember like, I remember like reading this text, and I'm just thinking, oh my goodness, this is not my reality when I was in ninth grade. And then I start thinking, if something bad were to happen, I would lose my ever loving mind. I don't, I don't know how I would be able to control myself. I don't know what I'd even be able to do with that rage and that anger. I, I, don't, I don't understand what I would do. And I'm, I'm, I'm feeling all of this. And I'm like, oh, this is exactly what's going on in Luke 4. If you get to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. Some of you have heard me say this, but I want you to see this. And we're going to play with this for a few moments, and then we'll be done. When you get to Acts 1 you got to understand, this inaugural message of Jesus is solely connected to the inaugural message post-ascension. Where you have Jesus basically saying one thing in Acts 1.8. Hey, wait in J-Town, wait in Jerusalem. Because the Spirit of God's going to come upon you in power. And you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But here's the question. Witnesses to what? Witnesses to what? And here's the answer. Witnesses to the Jubilee of all Jubilees. Witnesses to the kingdom of God that is breaking in. Witnesses to God's rule and reign that is so much bigger in than just Jerusalem. And, and for many, for many people, that's really, really hard. Because that the truth of it is this Jerusalem was the familiar place. And all of a sudden in Acts chapter one, it's saying, Yep, it's gonna get bigger. And it's going to go to Judea. And Judea was all the people that were less than. They didn't have the best training. They didn't have the best schools. But the Spirit of God and this Jubilee of all Jubilees was not just going to the people who were less than. It was also going to Samaria. The people that we can't stand. They were half Jew, half Gentile. The rabbis taught it was better to be a dog than it was to be a Samaritan. And Jesus is saying, oh, the jubilee of all jubilees, it's for them too. But it's not just for them. It's actually even going past them that this is actually going to the ends of the earth. To the people that you have no desire to understand. And this is, this is what it gets really real. This is why people like Jesus, but it's really hard to follow him. Because what Jesus is saying is, The jubilee of all jubilees isn't just in Jerusalem. It's actually expanding out. And you, when you walk into a situation that you do not get and do not understand, God's already there. And he's freeing people and forgiving people's debts and letting the blind actually see. And sometimes the blinds you. And you actually get to experience something that actually stretches you. And when it stretches you, it takes you out of what you think you can control of how you think God should work. And it puts you in a posture of surrender to see, God, do I actually trust where you're taking the kingdom of God? And I get, I get. Some of us, some of us, this is really hard. Because we like this. We like Jerusalem. It's working well for us. I want them to come here, and I want Samaria to come here, and I want the ends of the earth to come here. I want people to work on my clock. But what ends up happening for the disciple and why they got so angry with Jesus was he was like, once you start to trust and go out, you're going to see how God is working in ways that you've never dared to imagine. But here's where it gets even harder. And this is is it. And this is where we'll live, and I'll wrap up. I promise. For the Jewish people, and they had every right. Every right. These people hurt them. These people hurt them. And what do they want? They wanted God to bring vengeance on these people. And you know what Jesus wanted to bring? Jubilee onto these people. And this is what we have to actually wrestle with. Do I want someone to pay, or do I want someone to understand what was paid for them? Do I want someone to actually, can I let someone go? Because I actually trust and partner with what God is up to. And in this realm and world of our day, billions upon billions of dollars are being put into the economy every single day to get you to live in whatever Jerusalem you call Jerusalem and not to have to deal with any of these people. And your Jerusalem might look different than my Jerusalem. My Jerusalem might be different from your Jerusalem. The the people I want vengeance on might be different than the people you want vengeance on. But deep down, we are finding our world and saying, God, you work for me. And Jesus kept saying, friends, the year of Jubilee, of all Jubilees, is upon us. What do you want, really? Vengeance or the kingdom? And you know what's amazing? And then Jesus just simply says, if you want the kingdom, then lay akarai. And we're like, well, what do you mean? Are these people in? Are these people out? What do you mean? Like, does this thing, and he's like, come follow me. Come follow me. Come follow me. Come follow me. And that's what we're doing this year. And I promise you, I'm not going to shock you, but I am going to shake you because the deeper you go with Jesus, I have been shook and shaken and put back together and my discipleship in him has never been close to what it is today and I want that for you but it requires a little bit of effort you gotta be marinating in the word you gotta read a chapter if you wanna be an overachiever read more do it, do it, do it discuss it, chop it up but like let's, let's wrestle last thing, I said that already but this is really the last thing last thing, I really promise I promise I got two minutes left Here's what I want you to know. If you, like me, want vengeance, if there's a little bit of like Spider-Man venom in your heart, which is, which is okay, if there's like a little bit of vengeance that you want, you have to hold that versus the jubilee of all jubilees. Yeah, but I want you to do whatever you That versus the jubilee of all jubilees. And that's, that's the spiritual formation. And there's moments where you have to just admit I don't understand. Why people are so up in arms. I don't understand why it's so easy for division. I don't understand why people are behaving. I don't understand why this continues. I don't understand. And I'm not just going to say Jubilee of all Jubilees and not do my work, but I have to actually say God, I trust you. I trust you. A guy came up to me after the first service and said, "Yeah, but but Steve, there are people who keep saying bad things about me at work. Should I defend myself? I said, you know, if you actually studied the text, the text says that you should speak up on behalf of another, but you should let others and God speak up for you. But I, that's hard. I know. It's really hard. That's really hard. And so as Breu was saying, to hold space for one another, that's really, really important. It's part of our formation. And then lastly, every single day, every single day you should wake up and say, The jubilee of all jubilees. I'm going to live with that joy because I've been forgiven for my sin. I'm no longer a prisoner. i got freedom. And what am I going to do for another? Amen? Amen. Let's stand for closing. Benediction. Uh, Everyone got someone to read Luke 2 with? If you don't got someone, find someone. Um, It could be your spouse. It could be a friend. It could be someone that you want to be a friend, um, but just just do that. You could do it via FaceTime, via text. You could grab coffee. You can can go local in Elgin, do that. It's fantastic. But would you put your hands out for a blessing? Um, If you're new here, come. Bria we will be down. Some friends, we'd love to meet you, get you connected. But with your hands out, here's a blessing. My brothers and sisters of Forest City Church, may you know that the jubilee of all jubilees is upon us. And may you walk into it. May the vengeance that is in our hearts and it's in every one of us, may you surrender that to a more compelling vision. And may this week, in those moments where what still needs to be made right and what still feels to be unjust and is just flat out sinful and wrong, somehow can we bring that before God and say, please, 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 please make it right make it right. And may I, and may we, and may you continue not to defend ourselves, but may we speak on behalf of those that need our voice and our life, because we are in the jubilee of all jubilees. Grace and peace.